Uh, it is that time of the year where many devote themselves to all manner of things on the screen uh, related to the category and the genre of horror. Uh, it is no coincidence that the rise of horror is correlated with the rise of sexual deviance in our culture. They are one and the same. A pursuit of that which is aberrant to the way in which God would have us live an obsession with violence is also similar to an obsession with overt sexual deviance. Now you may be wondering, where in the world are you going? Here's my theme. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. You know the song? The eyes, their eye is the window to the soul. I've said it in this pulpit before, you become what you behold, or as I said it maybe even more crassly in my sermon notes, you are what you eat. Cotton candy, anyone? <laughs> it is sort of an age of decadence. An age of obsession with those things that God hates. And it is no wonder then that the church today is, because of its bad diet, ill. It is either starving to the point of death, or it is so fat on the things of culture that if God says, move, you say, well, you're going to have to give me a minute to stand up. This is where we are. And it is not just unique to this age in the church. The church, that is the body of Christ in various places, in various parts or times in history, has been slow, slothful in their response to Christ to go and make disciples to take dominion over all the earth. In fact, there are many in the church today who have removed from the mission of the church the very task of taking dominion. You'll see it in even in our own Psalter hymnal, in that Lutheran, or the hymn written by Luther, uh, when we are asking the Lord to keep us steadfast, the, t the notion of Christendom is removed from it. And as much disagreement as I have with that movement in Reformed circles, that movement that is often called two kingdoms or radical two kingdoms, what we are finding is the divorcing of the call to worship Christ as king, but don't try to implement the principle of Christ as king in the earth. This is a problem for us. And I think a lot of it is because the church often responds not to what is seen and read and heard in the scriptures, but to what is seen and read and heard in the newspapers. And we say to those outside the church, church, know your place, we say, okay, anything else? We are those who are called to take dominion. And what I hope we can see from Revelation chapter 1, verse 3 is it this blessed vision that John sees and then gives to us is that blessed vision that will cause us and enable us and carry us even through times where it does not seem as though the church is victorious to that place of great victory in time and in space according to the reality that Christ is upon the throne. And Christ does not sit upon a throne of a kingdom that is invisible on this earth but is gaining greater weight and glory the closer we get to Christ's coming. 
Now, I understand if you don't agree, if you disagree or do not agree with the conclusions that I reach in Scripture on these principles, and that's okay. I'm here to convince you otherwise. And to convince you of something that I do not believe to be wrong, but correct, and according to Scripture. And I want to cover this principle of blessedness, of joy, yes, even happiness. From this verse here, Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, in these two, two headings, I'm so used to having three headings, my body just reflexively held up three fingers, two fingers, two points, you are what you eat, and then secondly, blessings to the back teeth. You know what that means? Just full-on blessings. You are what you eat, blessings to the back teeth. Let's look at this first point. You are what you eat. Now, within the book of Revelation, there are seven beatitudes that are found in this book. Seven blessings. This is the first. What does Scripture call blessed? And when we see the Scripture call something blessed, you know what you ought to do? The ears should perk up, and you should either listen or do or follow the things that come after the word blessed. What is the scripture called blessed here? What is John saying as an opening, as a prologue to this letter? Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words. Well, over the span of the next several months, you're going to hear these things read aloud. I am blessed in reading them. You are blessed in hearing them. And then we are blessed in living in light of them. Now, this is true of all of scripture. But it is especially true of the book of Revelation for the reasons I will hopefully put before you even this morning. But all of Scripture is meant to be read, heard, and then keep what is read and heard. There is a clear message in the book of Revelation, and it must be read and heard. It must be rightly understood and embraced by those who read and hear it read and preached. Now, when I was in seminary, I had a professor who assigned about every semester a couple thousand pages of reading. And his standard for reading is this. Your eye must fall on every word of every page. Now, what he did not say was, you need to understand everything you read. And thank goodness, I never would have gotten out of seminary if I understood everything I read. And even now, I'm a student. And I'm learning the things from Scripture that I did not know even previously. But here, the call is not just to read it and to hear it, but in order to live by it, what must you do? Have some understanding of it. You have your whole life to read, to hear it read, and then to act accordingly. So revelation is living as all of Scripture is. But revelation is essential because it puts before us a perspective that is apocalyptic in nature. It is not unlike Jacob's vision where he sees that religious structure as he peers between the fabric of this world and heaven itself and he sees something you do not ordinarily see. He sees this structure upon which angels were ascending and descending. Christ, of course, says in the Gospels, that's me. Jacob saw Jesus in this glorious 
dream and vision. Those apocalyptic visions, you have them in Zechariah, you have them in Daniel, and scattered throughout the scriptures are not descriptions of history or here in the book of Revelation. It is not history written after the fact, which means I put the writing of Revelation before the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, prior to 70 AD. What John is not doing is writing about history. This isn't just historical stuff. It is a collection of symbols that show what is really going on behind and influencing historical events, not merely a rendering of those events. Do you understand what I'm saying? He sees things as they are. The greater weight behind the things that we live in and among. It is that which is the history writing. It is Christ upon his throne. And we need to understand that there is something beyond this world that governs what is happening in this world. It is apocalyptic telling. What John is saying, what John is writing to the church is insight and wisdom and understanding that the world cannot have apart from this vision blessed and given by the Spirit. And when you read it aloud, and when you hear it read, and when you act accordingly, you are blessed. Now in his commentary, Doug Kelly on the book of Revelation, says blessed means happy. It's not a trite happiness, like I ate this candy, it makes me happy. But happiness, as I say, to the back teeth. A kind of joy that is impenetrable by the things of this world. It is a peerless, stainless joy. And it comes simply by reading hearing, understanding, and living according to this word. You are being blessed right now. <laughs> you are. And it is not because I'm talking to you. It is because the word is being opened up to you, and by the Spirit, he is giving you insight into the way things really are. Do not let men tell you that there is nothing behind the fabric of what is seen, of what the principles of physics and thermodynamics speak to. There is something that goes beyond these things that upholds all of these things. And we cut ourselves off from blessing. We do not attend the voice of the Lord. If we cut ourselves off from God speaking in Scripture, we fail to receive strength, wisdom, and direction. And so we must keep that communication channel open at all cost. Which speaks to what? How active is this in your lives? The opening of it. The paying heed to it. The digestion of it. Taking it in because you are what you eat. The eye is the window to the soul. What are you seeing? What are you hearing? Young people... How much of the music do you listen to has that little E to the right side of it? Explicit content. And whether it's cuss words or not, how much of the content delights and celebrates in the things of this world that are passing away? Mm. 
We often do not live according to it. And so there is not just the element of reading and hearing, but keeping and obeying. James says in chapter 1, verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he looks, or he who looks, into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work or the word, this one will be blessed in what he does. Where do you gain insight into who you are? When you gaze upon the one who has remade you, How often do you hear how you ought to live in worship and then you go out into the world and you immediately forget? Christ is on the seat next to you. This sounds trite, I realize that. And it ought not to. I don't mean Christ is your co-pilot. He is with you everywhere you go. He cannot but be everywhere. There is this idea of a king who rises early in the morning he gets on his noble steed and he rides out of the gates of the castle and he begins to ride over all that he sees Christ is everywhere all at once among his people he is here with us this is why this promise of blessing is sure because he is here and that by his spirit he is speaking even now and what lies beyond these promises these commands this undergirding and validating promise is the lordship in the reign of Christ Jesus. And so let us then draw near, peer deeply into the word of truth, and find for ourselves inspiration and instruction. And here is where the blessing comes from. It comes from Christ seated upon the throne and our actual encounter with him through the word as we see him where he truly sits. This is what is happening here. This exchange, this dialogue in worship. We come before Christ in his throne. We are to hear, to read, and find blessing. And why? Well, The reason is given, for the time is near. Now, John is writing to the first century church, and if you believe, as I do, that this book is written prior to the destruction of Jerusalem, what you have after Christ's ascension, prior to the influx of or as the Gentiles are being brought into the church, is this question of what is a Jew and what is a true Jew? And there is this slow, kind of slow, shift from the kingdom of Christ manifested among the nation of Israel to the kingdom of Christ manifested among every tribe, tongue, and nation. And the exclamation point, the hard stop on Old Testament Israel is the destruction of the temple in AD 70. But before that time, you have a group of people going, what is the kingdom going to look like? When will it come? How are we preparing? And this is why the book of Revelation is written. Because John is preparing this young church for a life 
of conquest. And yet here come the Caesars. Here comes that great nation of Rome. And what they are endeavoring to do is not just try to put Christ to death, Herod, but all of those who would honor Christ as Lord and not the Caesar in Rome. And so a time of great persecution is coming. What must you hear from Christ if this notion of his kingship is real? What must you see to be faithful? You must see the throne. You must be told that despite what you see, there is a reality that is greater in essence that lies behind and governs and dictates everything that you see. Because if in the middle of your suffering, someone comes to you and says, don't worry, things will get better, you're going to ask this question, prove it. Show me that it will get better. And so what is John being inspired and carried along by Christ through the Holy Spirit, this being sort of tour by an angel of the heavenly realm, what does John see? That which blesses us. Because the time is near, because Nero is coming, Nero would take Christians, he would dip them in hot oil, he would light them on fire, and he would use them at night to light his gardens. That's serious stuff. And the church in every age has experienced persecution. But the significance of Revelation is this. Christ is on the throne. We see this in the book of Job, don't we? When Satan comes to where? The throne of heaven and earth. And he pleads before God. And he says, there's a man named Job. And the only reason he's obedient is because you have given him a lot of stuff. In the same fashion, all are under Christ's rule, but even to a greater extent because Christ has come and he has defeated death and hell and Satan has descended. And even now, because the strong man is bound, Christ is running roughshod over the kingdom of darkness to the church. You need to know this. Jacob needed to see that he was called into a kingdom that was greater than Babel, a tower built by men that could not reach to the heavens, but God had in store for men a tower that could, which is, in fact, Christ himself, who brings heaven and earth together. And all of these apocalyptic visions, like even we have in the book of Daniel, give us courage and hope. And so the first century saints, who were about to endure profound suffering, needed to see Christ upon the throne to understand that their suffering was not by accident or because the Satan had some sort of power, but that Satan was checked and that this suffering was by divine decree. And here is why. Because Christ says, I do not build my kingdom on earth as other men do. My kingdom is not of this earth. And the coming of Christ is through the twin experiences of death and resurrection. Suffering and conquest. 
And God has been through time taking his people through these sort of rehearsals of his own death and resurrection. This is what baptism is a picture of. Our being crucified, dying with Christ, and being raised in him. This is how we are made alive. We must die to sin, and we are raised in Christ Jesus. The reason why that is important is because even through the suffering of the saints, Christ's kingdom grows and is victorious. There is nothing that Satan can do to us that will ultimately thwart Christ's plan for the church. Remember what Christ says? The church is planted, it is built right by the gates of hell, but the gates of hell will not overcome her. That is our promise. Now, churches close, Christians are killed. But let's go back 2,000 years. There are more people in this room that were waiting for Christ's resurrection. And there are more people still to come. And the kingdom of Christ will continue to grow and to expand. And what will happen is Christ will show the world and he will bear witness to all in heaven and on earth. I am the king. The call for us to do is what? Labor, wait, and to hold before ourselves at all times that vision that blesses us. In fact, turn to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 13, he sees these visions. There are a number of visions in the book of Daniel. He says in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. This is the Son and the Father, the second and first person of the Godhead. And to him, that is the Son, Christ Jesus, upon the occasion of his resurrection and ascension, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Let's not over-spiritualize this prophecy. When the scripture says peoples, nations, and languages, it means peoples, nations, and languages. And it means that Christ's kingdom on earth will be greater than all the other kingdoms on earth. In a way that peoples, nations, and languages will witness and testify to. This religion, this Christendom to which you belong, is a dominion pursuing religion. Christ will have dominion. But it does not mean that there will not be persecution. It does not mean that there are not times that are near that will seem to conflict with the promises of God. The 20th century of the church was filled with incredible persecution. And as much as Satan and his minions and those who serve him seek to stamp out and silence the voice of believers, they will not be victorious. They cannot be victorious. And the reason is, there are no contenders to the throne. 
Satan doesn't have his little throne over here, and Christ is on his throne. And man, who, who, who's it going to be? We're going to place some bets. Who's it going to be? All the money needs to be placed on Christ. All your stake, all your hope, all your longings should be placed upon Christ. Because, secondly, he's able to bless you to the back teeth. Now, when I say blessings to the back teeth, I mean all of it. Full, flowing, unmeasured, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, God has prepared for you. I don't know what it will be like on earth when the kingdom of Christ is greater than the kingdom of men because I don't see that yet. Do you see that? But in some fashion, it is coming true. That what unites the church throughout the world is the Holy Spirit. And we must know where our blessings come from and where they lead. God has made us to be in dialogue with him, to receive from him the life-giving word, and then to pray back to him the words that he has given, and then to sow his word into the world and watch it reap great blessing in the places where he has called us to live. All of this comes from his word. It comes from being in the spirit, dwelling in the presence of the Lord, connected to the Godhead and strengthened by his presence. And many of us fail to apprehend, experience, and know living in the glorious light of the blessings of God because we don't listen. Our eyes are not fixed upon the right thing. Our ears are not listening to the right words. And we don't hear the decrees of the king because we're distracted by the blessings of men. And either those things are, do this, and you will live. I think of Darius and Daniel and the sinister satraps who sought to steal the heart away from faithful Israelites. And that unrighteous edict, pay homage to the state, right? That's what they said. You have to worship, or if you're going to pray, you have to direct all your prayers to wash to Darius. <laughs> But this is what all men want, right? Have you ever seen and stepped into the homes of former communist families? I've been to China. And one picture you saw in almost every home was a picture of whom? Mao Zedong. Why? He's not particularly handsome, or wasn't particularly handsome. But you know what he was? He was watching. And that little picture wasn't there for adoration. What was that picture there for? The one thing that men can seem to pull out of other men, and that is what? Fear. Terror. He's watching. In the age of the Soviet state, there's a building called the Lubyanka. The Lubyanka was right across from a toy store. And the Lubyanka was one of those places where the KGB would come and they would come into your building and you could hear the elevator going up and down at night and you're just lying in bed going, are they going to knock on my door? And sometimes they would pass. But they would take these people in trucks to the Lubyanka and there they would execute them. Thousands of people. Why? 
to instill fear, devotion. But is that devotion? Because as soon as that little group of people got a taste of liberty and freedom, what happened? I'm getting out of there. I don't want any more of this stuff. I'm going to take the picture of Lenin down. I'm taking the picture of Mao down. I'm taking it all down. So when Daniel was confronted with this opportunity to pray to Darius, you know what he did? He went into his house. He shut all the doors so nobody would see. He didn't want to offend anyone. No, what did he do? He went up to the second story. He opened the window and he got down in a posture of prayer and he prayed loudly and long. Why? Because Daniel had the dream. He had the visions. And even greater than this, Daniel's life was built upon this principle that men may rob, but God gives glorious blessing. Where does it come from? It comes from the throne. And where does it lead? It leads to glory. Christ is a suffering Messiah, but he is not suffering anymore. And this is what gives our suffering context. Because now he is on the throne. Our hope in the midst of suffering is not that we just look like Jesus, but that we also get the crown that Christ was given. There is a future beyond the suffering, and that is a crown. Blessing comes from the throne, and it leads us to the throne. Look at Revelation 7. Look at Revelation chapter 7, beginning in verse 9. After this, this is another vision. I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Do you believe that this is actually happening? I mean, many of us may come to the book of Revelation and go, you so symbolize everything that you remove any weight and meaning from it. Well, that sounds pretty cool. Is that actually happening? It's happening. It's happening. And it will happen. A great multitude that no one could number this eternal, apocalyptic, ever true and steadfast vision of John gives us the end game. It gives us everything that we need to know so that we might be faithful when times are difficult. So that we can see, going back to the book of Genesis chapter 12, where the Lord comes to Abraham and he says to Abraham in chapter 12, verse 2, I will make you a great nation. Was this fulfilled with Israel? No. How will it be fulfilled? Will it be fulfilled with America? No. This is not the point. The point is the church will so fill the earth that there will be so many throughout all of the earth that we must refer to her as a nation. It was not fulfilled with Abraham, which means what? 
It is yet to come. Is it fulfilled now? I don't think so. I think it is coming. And for what reason? Well, the origins of this great nation is the blessing of God. The goal and the mission of the nation is to be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, chapter 3, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So, not only is a vision of the throne that which sustains us in times of suffering, but the vision of the throne gives us a picture of what is to come after our suffering, and I don't mean just the new heavens and the new earth. Because I believe that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And if this is the case, then the church will be the means by which, and it is that body that has been brought into the manifestation of Christ's royalty, his ruling reality. We are blessed, and out of that blessing, Christ has called us to transform the world. It can't not happen. What that means is we've been brought into the work of restoration. We are kingdom builders. But we must have that vision of the kingdom. Do you grow tired in the work? Because this vision of victory doesn't always translate to us because we think, well, if the kingdom is victorious, then give me something big to do. There are no big jobs, really. And in fact, you know what comes with big jobs? A whole lot of problems. In fact, what it seems to be is the manner in which Christ blesses us to bless the nations is a kind of bit-by-bit step-by-step, plodding faithfulness. And this is why it's good for men, women, and children, young and old, rich and poor, is because everything you do, in light of the blessed vision of Christ upon the throne for the furthering of his kingdom, does the very thing you want it to do. It builds the kingdom. This should transform housework. It should transform banking. It should transform polity. It should transform in-church ministry. It should transform the way you play sports. How you live your life, the way you schedule your week. Every bit of this vision should transform every part of your life. Because Christ says what? It begins like a little mustard seed. Like a little trickle coming out from the foot of the door of the temple. And though it begins small, though it has humble beginnings, it soon becomes the greatest tree in the garden. It becomes a river that you can't walk through, by which the trees grow that bear fruit that is for the healing of the nations. And wherever we are in the history of Christ's rule on earth, and when he's coming again, doesn't matter. What matters is that while we are here, we behold him as he is, we are blessed by him according to the terms that he has given, and we move forward with the promise that we will be victorious. 
And this is the blessing of our ground and our hope. It is the fullness of the kingdom of God on earth. And I'm going to put a fine point on it. And I want to do it in two ways. I want to do so when we look at Romans chapter 11. How much time? How long? Because I can keep going. This is what I mean. When you choose one verse, you end up talking longer than you do if you choose 30 verses. In Romans chapter 11, this is oftentimes a difficult passage for us to translate or understand. Beginning in verse 12, Paul is talking about the coming of Christ and the church and our ministry of creating jealousy in the hearts of the Jewish people. And there will come a time in the church where there will be a massive response by the old covenant people to the new covenant, New Testament church. How will that happen? Well, let's look at Romans chapter 11. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, so he's addressing the Gentile church, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world... What will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. How are you provoked to jealousy? Of any type at this point. I just want to build on this idea. I remember I built a fire pit. And I pulled some stones out of the creek next to our house. And basically what I did is I just built a, I just dug a little sort of shallow hole in the dirt and I put rocks around it. And then someone showed me a picture of their fire pit. And I was provoked to jealousy. Now that's covetousness. What does jealousy here look like? We have been given a kingdom. This shining, beatific, glorious kingdom. And Paul is saying, when the Jews witnessed that thing that they were anticipating, that is the manifestation of the Messiah on earth to the victory of the church, they will look at it and go, we missed it. They rejected the suffering Messiah. But they will embrace the glorious Messiah. Are we giving the world something to be jealous of? That's the question. And the more we behold Christ, the more we eat his word and labor here on earth, what we are doing is building a kingdom that the world looks at and goes, oh, I want to be part of that. And it isn't just making sure the doors are open when the government says, don't open your doors. It goes even further beyond that. Sometimes it's, I want to believe something to die for. This is one of the fine points that I want to put on this. We ought to labor to make the Jews jealous. And then verse Peter. Actually, let me, just a second. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 6. This is sort of the final point that I want to make here. <coughs> Therefore, be careful to observe them. This is the law. 
For this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, here it is. Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has God so near to it? As the Lord our God is to us, for whatever reason we may call upon him. That's how we make the world jealous. God is near them. How is God made near to us? We dwell upon his word. We dwell in his presence. This is the goal. This is how Christ builds, builds a great nation. And then also 1 Peter chapter 3. You know this passage. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord your God in your hearts. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience. That means being righteous. And when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. Making the world jealous is not just an upward trend of things will constantly get better and we will never know pain. No, Peter says that it is through our suffering with joy and in our drawing near to the Lord that we make the world look at us and go, what do you have that I don't have? And I will say it right now, here in our socio-political, cultural context, there are going to be a lot of people who are living in fear, and they're going to look at you, and they're going to say either two things, you're crazy, you're a threat, or how do you do it? How can you not be afraid? And what do you say? Because I've seen Christ on his throne. What else is there? You cannot say, because I'm impervious to disease. No! Even if we, our flesh and our hearts may fail, Christ is our portion forever. Because Christ is on the throne. And to live is Christ, and to die is more Christ. So, saints of the Most High God, behold your triumphant Redeemer. Peer faithfully into the content of John's visions. Embrace the glorious call as a blessed recipient. And go spread the word of Christ's glory abroad. Build by the Spirit, and with your faithful labors, a kingdom that will never end, that can stand all threats and enemies against it. And though men may rail against you, Christ is on the throne. Let's pray. Lord, I